Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, this time last week, uh, one of the icons, a Hall of Famer, International Tennis Hall of Famer, passed away. His name was Nick Boloteri, passed away at the age of 91, but also credited with having an influence on a huge number of players that made it to number one, notably the likes of uh, Agassi, the Williams sisters, Becker was his first big one, uh, Sharapova, Rios, Hingis, Jankovic, and also Jim Courier. But the man who had a huge hand in Jim Courier's four major wins and took him to number one joins us right now. That man is Brad Stein. Good evening to you, Brad. How you doing, Stephen? Yeah, I, I'm well. When you heard the passing of Nick Boloteri, did you take any time to think about the influence he'd had on the game of tennis? Oh, of course. I mean, how could you not? I think that, um, I mean, Nick really changed uh, the way the game was was played. Not so much played, but from the standpoint of training and 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 players leaving home to go to the academy system. I mean, Boletari's now what is uh, IMG Academy in, in Florida was, was really the first uh, academy, and uh, the academy system was really created by Nick. He, he had this uncanny ability to be able to find something in players. I think he himself even, even said that... Uh, the fuel that sustained me to the summit is, without doubt, my passion to help others become champions of life, not just champions on the tennis court. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, that's a noble. That's a noble approach, isn't it? And, and, mm. and I'm a big believer in the fact that uh, you know developing character in players um, off the court translates to better character and better decision making and and uh, tougher competitors on court, you know, and I think that's the way, the way Nick approached things. I mean, I think he, you know, he had a background in, in the military and um, you know, he was, he was a a tough taskmaster when it came to training uh, all those guys. I mean, you, you look at the, the early years, especially at Boletari's when you had guys like Jimmy Arias and Aaron Krikstein that came out and had uh, success on the tour at such young ages and, and, a lot of that was obviously credited to the training system and the amount of time and, and energy that those guys put in in their training. And, and really also the Nick created a system within, within the academy where he was really um, – he was getting all the top players together to be able to train together and work together and, and develop their skills together. And, and I think if you look historically um, – I know in the U.S., but I think really most places around the world, a lot of the best players have come out of environments, where, whether it was a city or a club or some place where they had an opportunity to to train and work with other top-level athletes. And a lot of times you, you saw multiple guys coming from the same places. So, uh, and that, that's really what he did with creating the academy. In many ways, uh, success breeds success, right? 
Uh, absolutely, 100%. Part of his philosophy, it is said, was to emphasise the tactical, use the racket technology and use power over finesse. Do you think that was in any way groundbreaking in the game of tennis? Well, I think Nick, I think Nick created a, he created a system. You know, he had a belief in the fact that, um, I mean, he really, he really developed the concept that we still kind of use, which is that the game is dominated by serve and forehand. And um, he, he had guys training and just, just hitting forehands absolutely as big as they could back in the day. And if you, if you look at Crickstein and Arias and Courier and Agassi, I mean, those guys' games revolved a lot around uh, running around and, and finding forehands and, and dictating from the offside of the court with their forehands. And, and really that was a system that Nick had kind of created, you know, and, and um, he took that, he took that even up to we, we used to call it in the old days we used to call it the bali volley was the uh, <laughs> full swinging forehand volley out of the air you know anytime yeah. you saw a guy rip a forehand out of the air we, we would literally say oh that's the volley volley yeah but but when you're there nothing better to watch right uh yeah it's always very entertaining <laughs> that's for sure jim was jim was very uh was very well conditioned and, and competent at that shot when uh, when we first started working together. Yeah, and, and how did that come about? Because I'm intrigued about this relationship because I, I was fortunate and I, God, I can't remember what it was that Jim Currier at one stage turned up at the ASB, which is now known as the ASB Classic in Auckland and uh, he, he was the most affable, genuine human, one of the, the most affable, genuine human beings I've met. Do, is, that, is that how you see him? Uh, Jim, Jim's always been, um, a very, a very, um, approachable person. Yeah. I mean, open and, um, obviously very articulate and, uh, he loves exchanging ideas with people and, and creating conversation, you know? And, and, uh, so I think that's, that's pretty normal. You know, our relationship really started back when Jim was about, uh, 15 years old. I, I was lucky enough to get involved with what we called back in those days, the junior Davis cup, which was really our U S junior national team. And um, it was a hell of a team. It was a hell of a team though. When you had like some Curry and Sam press and Washington Chan and Todd Martin, hell. Yeah, no, it was uh listen, I was, I was incredibly lucky to get involved with that program when I did. And just like, you know, those guys that you just mentioned, I mean, we basically had everyone, from that era of tennis outside of, of uh, Agassi. Andre was the only guy that really, he had, he had you know, gone to Boletaries and was basically training on his own there and, and um, was turning pro, you know, a little bit earlier than those other guys. But, but yeah, we had Sampras and Courier and Michael Chang and Todd Martin and Malavia Washington and uh, Jonathan Stark, Jared Palmer, Jeff Tarango, basically every guy that you can, name in American tennis that that made the top 100 in the in the 1990s was at some point or another a part of that Junior Davis Cup um, program and so I was lucky enough to get involved with that Um, the guy who was the head coach at that time was a a guy named Greg Patton who's a bit of a coaching legend here in the United States especially in collegiate tennis Um, and and Greg asked me to be his assistant coach and and I took that position, and and really that made all the difference in in my coaching career was was getting involved in that 
program. And that, that put me in touch with Jim when Jim was about 15 years old originally. And um, we maintained a relationship, uh, you know, to some degree or another until he turned pro. And then when he decided to make a coaching change, um, he reached out to Tom Gullickson, who at that time was the, the head of men's tennis for the United States Tennis Association. And um, Tom was really doing a, a great job at uh, connecting players with, with coaches. And he put Jim um, with Jose Higueras. Jose Higueras um, didn't want to really travel a lot. And so they reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in being uh, Jim's traveling coach at that time. And, and for me, that was an amazing uh, opportunity to really kind of mentor under under Jose. I'd already spent quite a bit of time with Tom Bellickson, you know, and, and considered him to be a mentor of mine, but I hadn't really met Jose at, at, at that time. And then I went down, Jose lived in Palm Springs. I live in California. I live about five and a half hours North of Palm Springs. And so I went down and met with him and Jim down there and, and uh, spent a week or so training and, and made a commitment to, to start working with Jim on a more full-time basis and traveling with him um, and really being mentored. And, and Jose was, you know, what we would describe, you know, as being kind of the lead coach at that time. So when he won those four majors, were you his sole coach? Uh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. That, that's, um, you know, Jose was, Jose was working with him. At the Aussie Open, Jose never came to Australia. So I got a lot of credit for being there and being in Australia because I was, I was the one that was there and present with Jim on a day-to-day basis during those tournaments. Mm -hmm. The two French titles that he won, Jose was with us as well. And Jose, uh, Jose came to the other three grand slams. He normally, he obviously, he lived in Palm Springs. So he came to the Indian Wells event every year. Um, he, he took Jim when Jim got to that level, he was the guy that went to the ATP finals with Jim. Um, and then Jim, Jim actually moved and did all of his, um, did all of his training blocks in Palm Springs with Jose. And I would often go down and spend time down there, the three of us together. But, um, I, I did all the rest of the traveling. So I went to all those, the, the, all four of the, the slams with Jim. The only event that I really didn't go to was ATP Finals. Jose always did ATP Finals on his own. But you're part of the process, which is an important part. And I've always wondered how much influence does a coach have on a tennis player on a weekly basis? Um, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, it, it, it depends, obviously, at what stage you are in your development, um, both as a relationship coach and player and also with the player. I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity, you know, when I started with Jim, Jim was about 20 years old. He was already ranked about 28 in the world. So he was pretty well established on the tour. Um, that being said, Jose had laid out, you know, some plans and, and one of those things, one of the, the primary things, and I think probably the most important thing that gave Jim an opportunity to, to win slams and become number one in the world was the development of a slice backhand. And so we, we spent, Jose basically made us, you know, shake hands on an agreement that we would spend time working on and hitting slice backhands every single day that we were on the tour, whether he was playing matches or just training on those days. 
And um, so that was one of the things that we did. And that, that was a commitment that we made. So for, on a weekly basis, if you look what we did from week to week, when we were on the road, there was a, there was a commitment to working on the slice backhand, you know, every single day. Uh, obviously, every player is different. You know, I, I, I spent time, I started working with Marty Fish when Marty was 18 years old. So um, the development and what goes on from a weekly basis with a player like that is very different than the time that I spent with, I coached uh, Sebastian Grosjean. I started with Sebastian when he was about 28 years old. He was married and had two kids. Obviously, much different situation, much different kind of, uh, stage in his life than working with a, a guy like Marty Fish when he was 18. So it just depends, you know. It, it's the answer to most questions for me is always it depends. It depends <laughs> on on so many on so many different factors. You know, there's so many different factors that are involved. You know, what was Korea's greatest strength? Uh, I mean, I think that, that anybody that was around Jim and to this day, you know, would, would say that it was his, uh, his mental fortitude, um, his sense of determination and commitment. You, you combine that with an incredible work ethic and one of the biggest forehands in the game during that time. And, um, and you came out with a great player. And, and you know, his, his work ethic and his, his dedication and his commitment are, are one of the things that led him to develop an extremely adequate slice backhand. Again, you know, that was, that was Jose's blueprint for what Jim needed to do to really develop himself was really slice backhand and also the ability to transition and come forward and play more at the net. Um, and, and adding those things to his game um, and him making the commitment to, to, to add those things are really the things I think that that gave him a chance to really dominate the game for, for the period of time that he did. Do you think tennis has changed much since that time? Has it become in the men's game, at least too much of a power game where, whereby they don't mix it up enough. We don't see enough serve and volley. We don't see enough players at the net. Uh, it sounds like you've already made a decision about that question. Stephen. <laughs> Semi joking. Yeah, I feel like you're leading the witness with the way the way you presented that question. But I, I'm not going to. But I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, I, I think that the the game has um, the game has become much more linear. I would mm. say, you know, the 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 um, the racket technology, the string technology. Um, you, you have kids that are growing up now from the ages of six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old playing with rackets and strings that allow them to really um, develop power games early on. And they continue to play those power games through their junior careers. And because of the way they're hitting the ball, it, it, it has created a scenario where the game has become much more linear. There's a lot more balls that pass out the baseline without crossing over a sideline first. Um, and, and because of that power, it becomes more difficult for players that do play with a little bit more touch and feel um, to be able to take advantage of that because the, it's hard to take that kind of pace that, that is being created nowadays off the ball and be able to create angles and use other parts of the court. This is, so, why, this is why we're going uh, to Miss Federer. To some degree. Um, yeah, that, that being said... That being said, I mean, you still have 
I mean, absolutely some amazing tennis that's being played by the likes of, of Alcaraz and, uh, you know, the other guys that are at the top of the game right now. Um, I like to think, for example, that, you know, my charge that I'm coaching now, Tommy Paul, is a guy that's, that's trying to play more all-court, well-rounded tennis because he's not, a, he's not actually really a power player. And because he's not a power player, he, he, he has to be able to take advantage of the other, you know, attributes that, that, you can, that you can use within the game, creating angle, changing paces, coming forward and, and attacking the net a little bit more. And, um, and so that's something that we've been trying to do to, to give him an opportunity to compete against those guys um, that are just kind of, you know, banging the ball through the court. When you, when you talk about that in the style of the game today, you know who comes to my mind immediately? Who? This, this is, a, you know, someone that's not a top 10 player, but it's someone that's playing that style of game a lot is a guy like Ilya Ivashka. God, never, ne- he, he's, a, he's what I would describe as a proponent of power tennis. Uh, you know, he, he sees the ball and he hits the ball and he hits the ball very big and he hits the ball through the court all the time. And he's a very, very good player and a very, very tough guy to deal with. I think I think the the basis of my question about the power game and the lack of you know touch and finesse is that it's you you the ATP is in trouble of making it a, a dull product, right? And I wonder whether I wonder whether there is a case to be made for for looking at racket technology and saying, well, hang on a minute, we need to dial this back a bit to make it more entertaining, or do you think it's still entertaining enough? And and I say this cautiously, knowing that you're in, let's be honest, the bubble of tennis. You're a coach. You're in that, on that tour. Yeah, sure, sure. But I'm also a fan of the game, you know, and and, um, and I want to see the best and the most entertaining tennis that we can present out there. And, and um, I think that that, you know, that's what spectators want to see as well. I mean, that being said, you know, look at, look at the the center Alcaraz match from this last U.S. Open. Uh, I mean, one of the most exciting and entertaining matches you can, you can possibly, you know, find within the game for the last number of years. And, and you're talking about two guys that are massive hitters. Sinner especially, you know, is a guy that, that plays exactly like what you're talking about a lot. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 um, I think there's, there's two schools of thought in relationship to that. Um, I wouldn't mind. I think one of the things that, that you just brought up, I mean, part of it's the racket technology, but I think also that the ATP has to do a little bit better job with court surface. I think that the, the court surface has become a little bit too homogenized um, and mm-hmm. that regardless of whether you're playing indoors, outdoors, um, even the clay to some degree has become a little bit too consistent with the pace I, I would like to see um, a little bit more variety in in the court surfaces that guys play on. You know, some weeks slower, some weeks faster that would lend themselves to to more attacking tennis, more coming forward, um, and, and those kind of things. So for, for me, that's one of the things I think that they can improve. There is one argument that goes around consistently in the, in the world, and is who would be the greatest men's tennis player? And normally it comes around from the big three. And, you know, the big three, well, one of the big three's done, right? Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic. Do you have an opinion on this? Um, of course I have an opinion. 
<laughs> Let's see. You know, it's it's tough. It's tough, Stephen. I I think that for me, the biggest single biggest factor in in who is the actual goat of the game, not necessarily who any individual, you know, likes the most. I mean, mm. I'm a Federer fan. I love the style of Federer's game. I, I love the artistry of his game. I love the attacking style that he plays within his game. But at this point, you know, who has the most slams? To me, that's the single most important factor is who has the most slams, and, and that's Rafa. Who's going to end up with the most slams? I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that it's going to be Novak. You know, unless unless Novak has um, some kind of a, a debilitating injury that keeps him playing for the next co- couple of years, or if uh, COVID comes back and he somehow doesn't isn't able to play half the slams every year for the next few years. Um, but even with that, I think ultimately – Novak is going to be the, the the ultimate goat of the game with with the most number of slam titles, um, and then you combine that with the fact that he he has an overall winning record against both Roger and Rafa. I, you know, I think he he's going to stand out, and he's going to be he's going to be ultimately the the goat of tennis. Wow, and you've opened up a can of worms because uh, being a broadcaster, I call... <laughs> I, no, no, the can, the can of worms is not what you're expecting because for me, I call them majors and not slams because a slam is four, okay. four wins in a row, right? Four majors in a, in a calendar year, right? So why are yeah, we, call, why well, are we calling the them slam. slams? That, 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 that's the slam. <laughs> I mean, each of the... Each of the individual tournaments is a grand slam. No, there it? it's a major. It's officially a major. Okay. No, okay, we're not going. Okay, I'll go with I'll go with you on that. Yeah, so yeah. we can call them major titles. Yeah. And, and no one's won the grand slam, but but again, <laughs> Novak came the closest of anyone for a long, long time. <laughs> oh, you're 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 generous at heart, Brad Stone. Thank you so much for giving us your your time uh, this evening. Your time. Uh, happy festive season. Maybe one day we'll see you in here in Auckland with Tommy Paul. Uh, I would love to be there. I haven't been to Auckland for a very long time. It's not a bad house, mate. Happy festive season. All right. You too. Take care. Brad Stein coaches Tommy Paul. Coach Jim Courier as well. It's-